and welcome to the Unheard Weekly Podcast with me, Aisha Hazarika. This is the uh, podcast where we try and get our guests to explore stories which they think are important but sometimes underreported in the media. We also touch on some of the live issues and we do talk about our heroes and villains of the week. I'm delighted to be joined by two illustrious guests. Today we have Wes Streeting, he's the Labour MP for Ilford North, and Paul Embry, who is a firefighter, trade unionist and regular unheard contributor. Hello, gentlemen. Hello. I'd like to say there's been already a bit of division between them over what what they were going to wear because Wes is in his shorts (laughs) and Paul is in a full suit in this heat. (laughs) And suffering for it. (laughs) Paul, Not a wise decision. Not a wise decision, not a wise. But we're in a nice, cool, air-conditioned studio. Right. Uh, Paul, I'm going to come to you for your first, uh, your underreported story. And you have picked a really interesting subject to write about and it is the family. Over to you. Yeah, so so the piece that I've written about, um, I think I was trying to make the point that there's a, a certain moral cowardice, I think, these days amongst um, amongst our policymakers um, when it comes to what they would consider to be sensitive issues, but actually where uh, where out there in the towns and the the villages and the cities of the UK, um, the issues are not particularly sensitive at all and, and are quite mainstream. And when it comes to the issue of the family, I I would make the point that actually I think there's nothing revolutionary or controversial about saying, look, um, kids are generally better served by uh, being brought up by their two biological parents. I think there's overwhelming evidence um, to sustain that argument. Um, And actually there is um, a real crisis in terms of family breakdown uh, in the UK today, which is simply not being addressed by people at the top because they're frightened that they're going to attract, you know, a bucket load of criticism. They're going to be accused of stigmatising lone parents, etc. Uh, and because of that, there's there's a conspiracy of silence about the whole thing. Um, I mean, you know, in terms of the in terms of the crisis, you only have to look at the fact that the UK has one of the uh, largest um, proportions of uh, of lone parents in in Europe. Um, you know, a million children have no meaningful contact with uh, with their fathers. Uh, half of all fifteen-year-olds don't live with uh, with both parents. And when when you look at the polling and when people are questioned about this, almost the entire country realizes that this is actually a serious issue, and that it needs to be addressed. And that fatherlessness is an issue. That family breakdown is is a serious issue. Um, and when it comes to policy making, uh, policy making and when it comes to the politicians debating it, they hardly ever do or so far as they do. It's simply to, to trot out cliches about families coming in all shapes and sizes and we shouldn't stigmatise people. And people are suffering because of it. Young kids are suffering because of it. They're getting less favourable outcomes because of it in terms of education, in terms of their health, in terms of future income. And we have to start talking about it. So what do you think policymakers should do? Because I think nobody wants to see families break down. And I, I kind of actually you know, agree with you. I do think the best environment is a stable, happy family. But sadly, life doesn't always work out like that. Should we make it, should we, are you saying that we should make it harder for people to split up? Or, for example, in a lot of, I mean, just recently, just family breakdown that I have experienced through my friends, I hate to say it, it's often the father that has gone off because he's gone off with somebody else and that's his right to 
So what, what's the solution? I think the first thing, they have to start talking about it. People at the top have to start admitting that it's a serious problem. So what would you, what would you like them to say? Problem. I mean, well, first of all, to recognise that it's a serious problem and to recognise that actually where you do have pretty much an epidemic of family breakdown uh, throughout the country and where kids are suffering because of it... Um, and their outcomes, their future outcomes are being impeded, to recognise that's a problem, to say that that's a problem. Um, now, there is, you know, I'm under no illusions that policymakers can wave a magic wand and all of a sudden all of that is put right. I think there's, you know, there probably needs to be something of a of a seismic kind of cultural shift, really, to, to address the, the scale of family breakdown uh, in the country. Um, but, and uh, you know, no one's suggesting for a second, and, and there's often a lot of cliché spoken in, in this debate, no one's suggesting for a second that a woman, for example, who's being beaten every day physically by her husband should be obliged somehow to stay within that environment. Of course you don't want people to, to have to go through that, but... What about people who don't want to stay in their marriage? What about, let's say, it tends to be the father, it might not be, what about the partner who, who goes off and meets somebody else and they, they want to leave? What, but what, what would you have them do? I just think there's a tendency uh, today, and I think it's something that is very much um, uh, part of the ideology of the modern left, sadly. Um, it's kind of almost, it's almost all about the self. It's all about me. It's all about my happiness. It's all about my satisfaction. So people are too selfish, do you think? Absolutely, people are too selfish. You know, I, I think if, if you've got kids, then simply saying, you know, bearing in mind the importance of, 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 of kids having that input from both parents where possible, um, simply saying, well, actually, I'd be happier elsewhere and pretending, as so many people do these days, particularly people uh, on the left, that actually, this is the excuse that's tried out, well, it's better for the kids, isn't it? It's better for the kids to, you know, to, to, to be in a household where, where mum and dad are not bickering. I have to say, more often than not, I think that's used but as an excuse for people to frankly go off again, and do what they I, want to do. I, 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 I have a lot of sympathy for what you see, but I'm Again, this is just from my own experience, and this is across different social stratas, left and right. It does tend to be the man that wants to go off, particularly often with somebody younger. Do you think? Yeah, do you think a big message needs to go out to men about staying? You know, once you've decided to have a child with somebody, you've got a responsibility to stay uh, with him. Is that the sort of message you uh, think we should be having with men and men's groups? Yeah, and stuff? absolutely. That should be the message. And I don't dispute what you say. I think largely the the, the problem is with absent fathers rather than absent mothers. And you know, I have to be clear that there are there are lots of lone parents uh, who do an absolutely fantastic job. That is not in dispute. Um, and the suggestion that because you think that it is better for children and better for their life chances to be in a household with both parents, that somehow you're stigmatising those women whose, whose husband has gone off and, and left them, I think is a nonsense. It's simply saying, I'm simply saying, look, the model that I think it has been proven throughout history to work most effectively for, for children and for wider society... Um, should be the one that is encouraged. That's not to say that, you know, people, single mothers should be stigmatised or, or told that they're not doing a, a good job. It's simply to say, look, this, all of the evidence shows that this is the model that works best and as government we should try and use every lever at our disposal to encourage that outcome where possible. Wes, what, what are your thoughts on this? Do you think... Do you think Paul's right? Do you think that the if you had to grade a type of family, the best type of family would be the sort of nuclear family and everything would come underneath it? I think it's more complicated. Um, I, I don't have a problem with saying that it's better for children to grow up in a stable, 
loving household where there are two parents able to share the responsibility and the challenge that comes with being parents. But of course, we know life, as Paul's already acknowledged, life doesn't always work like that. I, I grew up in a single parent family for the first sort of 10, uh, sort of 11, 12 years of my life. I lived with my mum and then I went to live with my dad uh, throughout my sort of teenage years, well into university and then to his frustration well after graduating from university as well. I think he actually You're had still to, living with him. <laughs> no, no, no. He had to... I got elected to my local council and he literally had to move out of the borough to get me out because <laughs> I was part of that boomerang generation of kids who go off to university and then come back and can't afford to move out or don't want to move out. Um, so, uh, you know, I having that experience... You know, I do understand why lots of one-parent families do feel stigmatised, do feel like they're judged. Um, Did you feel like you were judged? Sometimes growing growing up as a kid. You know, the, the harder thing for me wasn't so much growing up in a one-parent family. It was more growing up on benefits in a council flat that was really difficult. And the harder thing even now is that kids growing up in the same circumstances in my constituency today have it a lot worse than I did. So when I was growing up, I felt an acute sense of embarrassment growing up in a council flat where, you know, I would go round to my friends' houses after school and play there, but I would never want them to come to mine because it was too embarrassing. And now I realise how lucky I was to have that stability and safety of a secure home that we weren't going to be evicted from. Kids growing up in the same circumstances today are not even in a in a crappy council flat they're in bed and breakfast temporary accommodation they're moved from pillar to post their education's disrupted their parents can barely hold down jobs because even where they are able to put down roots they're shunted somewhere else so um i think i come at this from a slightly different angle to pull in a public policy sense i, I don't think um there's much the state can do about or necessarily even should do about the shape of families or relationships. Or relationships. I, I think there are bigger societal questions around responsibility, responsibility to children, responsibility to people you've made a commitment to, particularly through marriage. You know, I, I was very much in favour of equal marriage rights for gay couples, but, you know, as an Anglican, um, for me, the institution of marriage is very important. That commitment you make is meant to be lifelong. Yeah. And, of course, things don't always work well. There's... You know, I'd much rather that people went their separate ways than um, stayed in a in a relationship that um, is unkind or you know, I'm not talking about abusive, but just unpleasant toxic for kids and, and toxic. Yeah. So, but there's not much the state can do about that. What we can do is create conditions in which families have the best possible chance of succeeding, whatever shape they come in. So. Um, for for one parent families, the welfare and benefits changes make their life a hell of a lot harder bringing up kids um the treasury committee which i sit on has just published a report today about household indebtedness and savings which show that too many families are literally one payday away from crisis if they lose their job or their financial circumstances change um, and I, when i've been to food banks that's so that's the common story it's people are it, it's they've they've a salary hasn't come in one week or two weeks and that's tipped them over because no one's got any savings exactly and all of these things create conditions in which the pressure on families is a lot harder and if you're experiencing financial distress if you're losing your job if um you you are reliant to some degree on either tax credits and um, when they were in their heyday or um other benefits to help get through the month 
and the government's introducing punitive changes, all of those things make relationships a lot harder to hold down. I mean, on that note, I do think that the state doesn't exactly make it easy to have, whether you're in a lone parent situation or if you're in a more traditional family situation that you speak of, Paul, the state isn't really making it easy to have a happy, healthy, holistic family life at the moment, is it, in terms of insecure work, the hours that people have to work, all of that type of thing? Uh, absolutely, and it's, it's a point that I, I touch on uh, in the piece that I wrote. It's it, it's no surprise that actually middle-class parents who enjoy a greater income are more likely to, to stick together than working-class parents who are suffering from the effects of austerity or low wages or unemployment Um and all of those kind of economic factors which can create pressures and, and drive people apart. So it's vital, I think, and, and I say this as, as someone who's an active trade unionist and, and Labour Party member, to, to, to challenge austerity, uh, to close the gap between rich and poor, um, to make sure that people are paid a decent wage and, and, and that there's a decent work-life balance for people. I think one of the tragedies is that um, two parents now almost invariably are forced to, to go out and work, um, often not because they really want to, but because they're driven to financially. Um, and that's a really sad thing, and I think is a massive change from 30, 40 years ago, where actually, you know, I think my grandparents, for example, when they were bringing my parents up in, in Dagenham, they, they had a decent council house, didn't have lots of money by any stretch of the imagination, but both my mum and dad's family had a decent council house, uh, and mum was able to to stay at home and and bring the kids up. Dad was able to to go out and uh, and do a job, uh, and actually still have a reasonably decent quality of life. Um, and I just think that's unachievable for so many people now, particularly think, in London, because of the you know the cost of housing. Yeah, I mean the, the cost of living, the cost of housing is ridiculous. I mean, where I probably push back a little bit, is I think a lot of women over the last sort of thirty forty years have have enjoyed going out to work and it's socialisation for them and stuff like that. But I I agree with you that I think for a lot of people, just the concept of family time is almost like a luxury now because so many people have to almost do mm. tag teams if they are in a functioning relationship, working nights. I mean, sometimes mm, they hardly crazy. even see each other. And know, I, can, as, I mean, I, I, I would ask the question. I mean, undoubtedly, you know, women um, who go out to work in many cases do enjoy it and there's a sense of liberation among women that they're now sort of free to go out to work and no one will raise an eyebrow in the way that perhaps they did once upon a time. And of course, anybody who wants to, to go out to work um, should be entitled to, to, to do so without being criticised. But I mean, I, I do wonder if women who are in a family where the wage isn't particularly high uh, and working in a call centre, for example, and, um, and you know, working all the hours God sends to, to, to get the minimum wage or something. Do those women with young children doing that really feel liberated? And there are millions of them. Do they really feel a sense of liberation well, when they go through the doors of that call centre each, each morning? Would they not? And, and I say not just about women, by the way, but fathers as yeah, well who may want to look, may so, want stand. Would they not I, rather I be, be at home raising their children? Think, I think many of them would be. Well... I think lots of women that I know that have children desperately love their children, but they also love having a bit of independence mm. to go and do to do some work. What, what, what is hard for them is because childcare costs are so hard. Sometimes it almost means why are they they're just basically working for their for their childcare. But I think for a lot of women, what they would like to be able to do is to get flexible working, so they could drop the kid off at school, go and do a bit of work, and be there for them. 
to pick them up and that kind of thing. And I don't see why that should be such a problem. And I, I don't criticise them for that, by the way. You know, yeah. I, I, if, you know, if that's people's decisions, that that's that's perfectly all right by me. I'm simply making the point that I don't think we should fall into the trap of believing that millions of women working long hours with young children, not for a very good wage, are somehow have somehow been liberated. I don't think many of them see it that way. I mean, I think there's, I think there are opportunities coming up. You know, there, there is a debate, um, probably not um, as quickly and urgently as we should be having it but there is a debate now about the future of work the way in which technology is going to transform our society the impact on jobs the structure of the labor market yeah. i actually think we need stronger political leadership in this country and, and actually globally thinking about what does the future of work look like and what are the opportunities there can we reduce for example the standard working week so that people do have more quality time more quality of life i think you know the left absolutely needs to get into this debate about quality of life and families um and to 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 do so in a forward-looking way and you know one of the things that i find sometimes uncomfortable about um the family debate and the traditional family debate is that it, it kind of airbrushes out lots of modern families that i think you know people used to um sort of dismiss mixed race families for example as um inappropriate improper not good for kids what if they get picked on because they're to both their parents look different now it's the case where we've got um same-sex parents yeah. and th look at how many kids are out there who would need a stable loving home in the care system push from pillar to post you know if they could be adopted that's wonderful if gay parents want their own children that's wonderful i think um the the, the nature of families the appearance of families has changed constantly yeah. um the important thing is that we protect the quality of life for families and make sure that all children can grow up in in safe stable and happy yeah. relationships a and also i think we have to take the point that um the the nature of who does the child caring is also changing lots of fathers now want to be the primary carer but anyway a really really rich topic paul thank you for um introducing that to us and there's there's a lot i think on both the left and the right the only thing i would pick up on is the politicians i don't want someone like boris johnson lecturing me about kind of fidelity <laughs> and like no, commitment he's, he's probably quite, not the best example, yeah exactly I, quite I just and as are quite a lot of tory mps that's why a lot of mm. the right don't say anything about this as well but mm. that, that's another I, discussion. I worked at stonewall during the equal marriage debate and when MPs used to stand up sort of railing <laughs> against it, we used to joke in the office, well, we, the, you know, when they were talking about the sanctity of marriage, it's like, well, which of your marriages are you defending the sanctity of? <laughs> yeah, exactly, Back exactly. Exactly, with an open net shirt. Yes, we all remember those glorious days. <laughs> and it looks like they're back. That neatly leads us on to sort of like European uh, trauma. Um, Wes, <laughs> your story, um, it's not an underreported story, but um, you know, there's so much of it Everyone's this week. sick of it. People are now turning off the podcast as we, no, they're like, no, no, the one's Make a Brexit. It, no, stop no, stop. Um, go on. Your, your story is we want to have a chat around um, Brexit and, and a sort of state of the nation where we are right now it's not going very well is it i mean whether you voted leave or remain i think we're entering the summer in a really bad place because the government's negotiating position they're going to the eu 27 with doesn't command a majority of the house of commons and it's hard at the moment to see theresa may coming back with any deal that will be able to take the majority of MPs with her. Um, I think lots of people who voted leave, as we're seeing from some of the polls out there, are saying, well, hang on, this isn't the Brexit we voted for. Um, lots of Remainers are feeling completely unheard um, and 
ignored during the course of the Brexit discussions. Businesses are kind of tearing their hair out saying we need certainty, but also we need a plan that works. And at the moment, it seems like no one is happy and they just want certainty. They want us to get on with it. But there, there, there isn't a clear plan. Then you see the Prime Minister reassuring us by saying, don't worry, guys, we're stocking up on food and medicines, which I, I found everything other than reassuring. Um, but also, that was kind of announced almost at the same. The other thing I thought was amazing was that the, the new Brexit... First of all, it was announced that the Brexit department is no longer dealing with Brexit. And then... Dominic Raab, who's the new Brexit secretary, was busy giving evidence about stockpiling food as it was announced that he was no longer in charge of the Brexit negotiations. So, presume he is now the minister for like baked beans or like tin food. Yeah, there rationing. is a real there is a real air of chaos around the whole thing. I mean, I, I, I for a while now I'd signed up to the idea that we should have a people's vote on the final deal, and that because I, I and and I, I believe in that kind of principle reasons the public started this process by voting to leave. This is so big and important and it's going to have, unlike a general election, this is going to impact on our country for generations. And I thought this was too important to be left to Parliament. I, I now think the people's vote will become a pragmatic choice because I think for the government, for the Labour Party, there isn't actually the level of consensus that we need. It will be very hard for Labour MPs to be asked to vote for any kind of deal that the Prime Minister comes back with. Um, the- Can I just ask you something? If there is a people's vote, I mean, I presume... You respect the democratic vote that happened at the referendum. Yeah, I voted to trigger Article 50, you know, in spite of believing that Brexit's a mistake. So would you, if there was a people's vote, would you have an option um, to remain in the EU? Would you not put that option on the table to see it as a kind of phase two of that democratic process? Um, I would like deal or remain to be the choices on the basis that unlike the referendum, people could then compare like for like the choices um, and it may be that the choice is hard Brexit or remain. Um, you know, who knows what that kind of final deal or, or outcome is going to look like. Can I just ask a question on that? This is a question that's... I'm a pro-Brexiteer. Um, this is a question that no one has ever answered satisfactorily. If the choice in a second referendum was deal or remain in the EU, what possible incentive would there be for EU leaders to offer us anything decent within that deal if they knew that a bad deal is likely to increase the chances that we stay in the EU? That's a fair question. Well, two things. Well, firstly, that's why um, I've never pushed either the Labour Party or Parliament to um, have a second referendum. You know, the the Lib Dems are always, well, when they can remember that the votes are on, they do come along and every now and again with their amendment for a second referendum, and I've never voted for it for, for precisely that reason. Um, so but there's no incentive but, at all, is there? So, so, if they so, think we could stay so Paul, in the EU with a bad yeah. deal, they'd so say, well, I think that's a good anything. point. So to come back to you, so what about uh, what about a second referendum? No, which, which, hang on, hang on, let me finish, let me finish. Which doesn't have remain, but has the choice to people, okay, you voted to leave, here's a second referendum saying either this is the deal that, 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 that's been proposed or a no deal. Well, what about I mean, that? Because then that gives people a bit more choice over what, how we Brexit. Sure. Well, I mean, the first the, the first point to make is this. But the, what do you think about that as a as an idea? Yeah, I'm I'm I'm, I'm relaxed about that. But the, the the point that I would make is the British public did not vote to leave the EU only with a trade deal. They voted to leave the EU full stop. Now, if we get a trade deal, 
it may be a bonus. Great. But the point is, the ballot form did not carry the, the, the question, remain or leave only with a trade deal. It but, was remain but, or leave. But Paul, to be fair, there's so many different... Um, there's so many different views on why people voted. I know, I know, I know people who voted to leave because they were just very, very worried about immigration. I know people who voted to leave who are absolutely relaxed about immigration, but they're very, very concerned about sovereignty. Mm-hmm. I know people who voted to leave because they're just sick of the political establishment and they're just sick of how things are done. So there's quite a lot of different interpretations. And the, the the truth is, the reason you're not seeing any kind of sizable shift in the polls and, and no kind of regret or remorse, as it's called, uh, is because the people are looking at the establishment and thinking, actually, two years on, you're still not really listening to me. And if you look at the debate um, in Parliament and amongst the, the, the kind of Westminster commentariat and inside the bubble, ever since the referendum result, it's been largely about all of the technical stuff. So there's been interminable discussions around the single market and the customs union and the Irish border. All of that's important. I'm not I'm not dismissing it. But actually, those technical things were not the reason that people voted leave in the first place. For people who voted leave, it was about things like self-government. It was about things like sovereignty. It was about things like control but, but of the, borders. The thing you're seeing is... And, and, and nobody is speaking about that stuff, not, not in any serious way. But, and, and until they do, and until, you know, whilst the establishment just continues paying lip service to, to people, they're not going to change their minds. But do you not feel that when you say things like, the problem that we've had is there's been a, there was a lot of emotion around the Brexit vote, and I completely un- understand that, and I completely understand why people voted to, to leave in many ways. We've had a lot of emotion, we've had a lot of big feeling, but at some point you've got to get down to the really boring and difficult, and you call them technical things, that's what you have to do in, in, in politics. And actually extracting ourselves from the EU is one of the biggest political and policy challenges we've probably faced since like the Second World War and rebuilding Britain after that mm. point. And so at some point it's going to get... To, but where's how? So how do the politicians make that bridge between the boring, technical, dry stuff and the emotions and the anger that, you know, that, that people, that Paul talks about? Well, I mean, firstly... For people whose jobs are at risk, this won't feel very technical if they lose their jobs. And you've got big employers like Airbus warning about the prospects of getting this wrong. Um, I think part of the challenge is during the referendum campaign, people were told mixed things. So some leave campaigners popped up to say, don't worry, we're going to st- no one's talking about the European single market. We'll remain part of that, but we're going to be outside the European Union. Others said something very different, more attuned to what the sort of Jacob Rees-Mogg's of this world are saying now. But would you also also concede that the Remain campaign did a really bad job of kind of understanding the emotions that people felt? Well, I think it's bigger than the Remain campaign. I think it goes to sort of the wider political establishment generally. One of my great fears and frustrations since the referendum is that we haven't had enough debate or focus on the conditions of our country that led people to voting leave. And, you know whether you're taking sovereignty and control or immigration, beneath that, there are a huge range of issues that lead people to being concerned about those things, like whether it's, you know, the feeling of powerlessness, the feeling that the reason why your wages, terms and conditions are worsening is because of the way of we're either outsourcing uh, manufacturing jobs or we're importing labour to undercut 
British workers. And there's obviously a huge debate even about but the evidence it, base it, on that. It, but it, it loops into what we started this conversation about in terms of even it gets to the family, you know, in terms of how your conditions and how your everyday life is. You feel you're getting screwed and it's having a huge effect. That I mean, that was a massive subculture of the climate of the Brexit. And, and those things aren't going to be better. And those conditions are not going to be better if our economy... Um, is tanked in the in the way that I fear it's going to be if we go further down this track. But okay, I'm just going to because I'm just really conscious of time. But just before we just wrap up this section, I'm just going to ask a quick fire round of just a few things with you, Paul. Are you happy with the way Brexit's going right now? Not particularly, but I, I said long ago that it's going to be messy because you've got the establishment, the political establishment in this country, charged with the task of carrying out the wishes of the people who wanted to leave when the establishment itself okay. didn't. So it was always going to be messy. Wes, do you think Brexit's going to happen? I think it's going to happen. I think it's definitely going to happen. Um, I, I really fear about what comes after, and and, the, and uh, my worry is that all of those things that led people to voting leave their people's lives, the material impact on their lives, their communities, the condition of our country will worsen as a result. And just as I, I, I you know, when when some people say if we had a second referendum and people voted say in, that could unlock a pretty ugly form of far-right politics. I do think that you know, there is a legitimate concern there and it worries me. But similarly, I worry about the future of our country if if things worsen for people in terms of their jobs, their livelihoods, their communities. Well, look, this is a debate that we will definitely return to forever and ever and ever, this never-ending Brexistential crisis. Now, we're just going to move on to our final section of the podcast, Heroes and Villains. Now, um. Paul, I'm going to start with you, your heroes of the week. Yeah, heroes, plural. Um, I, over recent weeks, have been sitting through the Grenfell Tower public inquiry uh, in my capacity as a, as a national executive member of the Fire Brigades Union. Um, and to a man and woman, uh, virtually all of the, the people on the witness stand, the firefighters who have been called to the witness stand, are members of the FBU. Um and as a, as a firefighter myself, even I have been incredibly moved by the testimonies that have been given by those firefighters. Um, the media interest in the inquiry has waned a little bit after the first few days, as you might expect. But actually sitting in there day after day, you still hear the really powerful stories coming out of how firefighters went into a building that they didn't know wasn't going to collapse around them when they were inside, um, the intense and ferocious heat and smoke, the fact that they, in some cases, got to the top floor of that building battling through that heat and smoke and, and literally risking their lives to do so and carried people downstairs, um, coming out when they were absolutely exhausted, firefighters you know, passing out when they came out of the building. Um, incredibly powerful and harrowing stories um, and I just think that they are worth a mention because and the fact is when they're on the witness stand um, they're so understated about the whole thing mm. and so matter of fact about the whole there's thing no, there's no ego is there there's no, there's no, no look at heroism me. or yeah. anything like that it's just I went in there I did what people expected me to do but um, but they're heroes to me and the FBU is very proud of them and did you pick up on the Andrew O'Hagan article, which was in the London Review of Books, which was a very long and um, in-depth piece of work, but it was quite critical of the firefighters at, at Grenfell. Now, this journalist has been um, a lot. Of, he said a lot of criticism as well, saying that it's very easy to be a, 
an armchair critic mm. of what the firefighters should and shouldn't do. What, what's your sort of take on Yeah, that? and it's disappointing because actually I, I read the piece and I, I, I think those criticisms of firefighters kind of masked some other really useful points in the piece about the lack sort of regulatory system and the effects of, of outsourcing and deregulation, etc. Um, and what's been disappointing as well is, is, is the way I think the inquiry has set it up. It's, it's almost back to front. So phase one... Um, has been the response to the fire and firefighters have been in the firing line straight away. And no one's saying that firefighters should be above scrutiny. Of course, questions should be asked at the fire service. Um, but it seems it seems strange that the, 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 the real potential culprits have been left until much later. The politicians and the people who presided over the, the sort of lax regulatory regime, the, the contractors, etc. Surely those people should have been in there first explaining why a building that was built 40 years ago and was perfectly safe uh, suddenly turned into a fire trap um, and they should be answering those questions. Well, you make a good point. I mean, it's an interesting way of how inquiries are done. They tend to do the emotional bit first and then the structural policy bit afterwards, but there, there could be a good argument because everyone gets bored by the time part two comes along. It could be it could be worthwhile in future to swap those around, but thank you for that, um, Paul. Now, Wes, your villain of the week, please. Yeah, as, as Paul did heroes plural, I'm going to do the same. Um, my villains of the week are the Labour Party National Executive Committee, um, with honourable exceptions. And can you just explain the, to our listeners why you've picked them? Yeah, the Labour Party leadership and the NEC, in their infinite wisdom, decided last week to adopt new guidelines on tackling anti-Semitism, which has plagued the Labour Party um, both in practical terms with failing to tackle individual cases properly, but also politically, reputationally, it's done a huge deal of damage to the Labour Party. And this was meant to be an opportunity to turn the page on that and to start rebuilding trust and confidence. Now, the Labour Party has drawn up its own guidelines, different to the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition, which both in terms of you know, that document not only defines anti-Semitism, but also sets out a range of illustrative examples which help us to establish a framework for tackling anti-Semitism, which that's is widely the, that's adopted. that's the code adopted by the Crime Prosecution Service the and government, government departments. Um, across and the you yeah. know, local authorities across the UK, it's recognised internationally and it carries the confidence of the vast majority of British Jews. Now, the Labour Party's document has some material differences with that definition. I would argue that they weaken the IHRA definition. Its authors would argue that um, it has strengthened the IHRA definition and makes it stronger. Now, whether you agree with me or whether you agree with the Labour leadership, everyone ought to accept that when you have uh, the representative bodies of British Jews condemning the Labour Party's approach, the chief rabbi and, and over 60 rabbis from across the country from the theological spectrum of Judaism, by the way, agree on nothing most of the time, <laughs> but have been united on and this. And there have been three front the three pages Jewish community newspapers. This has been handled so spectacularly badly. And Wes, why do you think that is? Because it feels like an absolute no-brainer that, you know, to, to adopt this code. Why, why do something different for the Labour Party? What, what's the real reason behind it? Is it the argument that it's because there are so many people senior in the Labour Party who have got these views that could be seen as anti-Semitic or is, is that too much of a stretch? Um, I, I do think that the new definition will make it easier for people to get off um, for anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. 
Um, I think that anti-Semitism has never been properly understood by the leadership of the party. And I think that, worst of all, um, the Labour Party leadership has just shown a complete unwillingness to listen or engage in a meaningful way. And the people around Jeremy Corbyn are more interested in appealing to his base in the party than to the wider electorate and in particular the wider Jewish community. Now, you know, there are people, there are Jewish members of the Labour Party who say, no, I'm with Corbyn and the Board of Deputies doesn't speak for me and the Chief Rabbi doesn't speak for me and, and all the rest of it. And that's, uh, I don't agree with them, but they're entitled to hold those views. But what we shouldn't do is labour under the misapprehension um, that, um, or, or illusion that um, these people reflect the opinion of the vast majority of British Jews who are hurting. You know, my Jewish colleagues in Parliament are deeply pained by what's going Absolutely. on. Jewish we, members are, we, my um, constituents yeah, are. Yeah, and we, we, we all heard about the, the, the words, the rather um, heated exchange between Margaret Hodge, um, a Jewish MP, and Jeremy Corbyn. And of course, Margaret Hodge is now, it looks like she's going to be disciplined. The Labour Party has said that they're going to do a bit more consultation around this. Do you think a, a resolution can be reached on this? <sighs> I mean, I, I spent the best part of the week um, trying to persuade them to not go ahead with that NEC decision. So you went in and actually spoke to senior people yes, around Yes, and, and I basically team. said, look, you think you're right. The vast majority of commun Jewish community aren't with you. Just stop this right in its tracks. Engage now. You can't pass the decision and then say, and now we're going to consult on something we've already decided. That's phony. It's not real. And it's just doing immense damage to the Labour Party and... None of us wanted this route. I'm not enjoying this route. It's a deeply unpleasant experience for everyone. And I just hope over the summer we can now get this right. Well, let's all hope that the Labour Party can sort itself out on this because it is a, it's, a real, it's a real shame for a party that once really stood for fighting discrimination um, and racism in all its form. Well, look, thank you both hugely to my two guests, Wes Streeting and Paul Embry. Um, I hope you've enjoyed the show this week. Really, really fascinating um, discussion. I should actually say that uh, Paul and Wes are both... Um, Labour Party um, people, they're on the so actually the same side of the Labour Party. Where's is from? It's a very broad church, um, and not broad church in the sense everyone dies at the end of the episode. Um, <laughs> there's always, there's always a murder. That, there's that. always a murder in broad church. Um, I'm actually going to be off for the next couple of weeks because I'm off to the Edinburgh Festival, where I'll be performing my stand-up show, Girl on Girl: The Fight for Feminism. Hey. Do you come along if you're up at the Edinburgh Festival? Um, I'll be back um, website where you can hear um, many more podcasts like this and you can read great uh, material including lots of stuff that Paul has written. Um, you've been listening to the Unheard Weekly Podcast. I'm Aisha Hazarika. Mm -hmm.